Good evening, everyone. Come on, come on in. We are in for a treat this evening. So everybody come on in. Dr. Elaine Ingham is gonna be with us this evening. I'm very excited. We've never met personally, but uh, we've had a couple of encounters online. So it's been very good. All right, well, I'm gonna go ahead and, and kind of get this going. So, um, gosh, I, I've just, I, this is gonna be great, folks. Um, I wanna read, I wanna read just a little bit here about, about Elaine. Elaine Ingham is an American mic microbiologist and soil biology researcher and founder of the Soil Food Web. And that's probably what we're gonna spend most of our time talking about, but, I want folks to understand here, we have a lady here who is revered as one of the best soil biologists in the world. And she's on our podcast this evening. I could not be any more happy and ecstatic. So uh, giddy up, let's go. Elaine, how are you this evening? I'm doing good, yeah. Good, great. Well, I'm gonna ask you, Elaine, the first question I ask everybody, what is on your mind right now? What are you thinking about? Um, thinking about all of the clients that we've had coming to us and wanting to um, get the biology into the soil in their um, fields so that they can get all the benefits of the soil food web. As you said, yes, we will talk about that tonight. And um, so it's a, a really hectic time of the year because, uh, well, especially in Oregon this spring, We've had a really cold, very cool springtime oh, really? period. Yeah, we've just, it was just like last Friday that we got into the 90s at all. First mm -hmm. time this year, we've just had low after low after low come in. And so it's raining, raining, raining. We have caught up on our deficit completely from the last five, six years of drought. And now everything's kind of soggy and you can't plant because you can't get your equipment in there. And now finally hot, night, nice warm summer days and everybody's out there planting and wanting um, that or um, compost that we make um, available to them so they can be um, getting all these good organisms in there. And of course we have a lot of research that we're doing um, trying to show people how to get this biology into your soil. What's the easiest, least expensive. And we do of course then compare the chemical system with the biological system. And this year with the increase in prices of inorganic fertilizers wow. by, you know, something over 800%, um, we just take that, you know, amount of money that you would um, otherwise spend on just the inorganic fertilizer. Um, we keep it all in your own pocket because you don't have to um, be buying any inorganic fertilizers at all if you have a really good food web in your soil, if you get that nutrient cycling up and going. And then with the pesticides, all of these organisms in the soil are um, helping the immune system of the plant to function. Without mm -hmm. these organisms in the soil, the immune system of the plant doesn't work. So I don't care you know, how much... Um, bacteria or fungi or whatever that you put in alone, that's not going to do the trick. And so people say microorganisms don't have anything to do with um, 
uh, uh, whether the plant has got an immune system or not. No, it has everything to do with whether your plant's immune system is going to do its job. It can't do its job if it doesn't have the nutrients coming from the soil, and that's what the microorganisms provide to your plant. Okay, so all right, so let's let's back up just a second there. Um, so if okay, if I got this right, I'm just going to use for loose terms there bugs in a jug. Okay, um, can we use bugs in a jug to help this process? And if so. What are we looking for? Yeah, it's it's going to help the food web to get five or six other species perhaps into the soil. And as long as it's a bacterium or a fungus that belongs in this part of the world. That's it, a good point. Yeah, because if you take something that they isolated in Pennsylvania and you bring it out to, you know, uh, Missouri or Oregon or California, the probability is those bacteria are going to go, I have never seen weather like this ever before. I'm going back to sleep. And you wasted your money. So yeah. uh, is it really going to help? You might want to do some testing on very small amounts. So we okay. put back as much of that original um, species diversity of the bacteria and the fungi and the protozoa and the nematodes so that you're getting all of those naturally existing, the indigenous um, food web from your own part of the world. So we don't make the same compost in Seattle as we make in Texas. So, um, yep. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, I talk a lot about epigenetics and I'm the firm believer of this. And I also think this holds true for the microbial biome as well. We've got to keep, you know, helping to turn on or stimulate those those bacteria and fungi that are inherent within your your dome, your context where you are in the world. Yeah, Mother Nature has only had a billion years to work on this, and I think yeah. she's probably figured it out. She's way yeah. more intelligent than we are, and so we've got to stop killing all of those organisms that do these beneficial things. And we've got to have to start understanding how nature makes it all work. She's only been growing plants for the last billion years up until the last, you know, uh, one, two, 200 years, maybe it, it, where we've really come in and done a job with the inorganic fertilizers and the pesticides and the herbicides and the fungicides and the, all of those things that you don't need. And as right. a farmer, why should you be paying for something you don't need? You're yeah. barely, your margins are just barely eking you out in existence. What if you can take your whole pesticide budget, your whole inorganic fertilizer budget, and zero them out? How much money would you have still in your pocket at the end of the year? Yeah, that's what we've done here. We've taken everything. We're on eight, eight years now of, of no inputs and... I mean, it's we, we struggle with certain aspects of the farm. We struggle raising corn. Uh, I'll be totally honest with you. Um, we do we do pretty well with anything else other than corn, and maybe it's the way I'm trying to do it. So hopefully we can learn something here tonight. Yeah. But but Elaine, let's go back. Let's go back to to the beginning here now. Okay. 
someone has approached you and they want to go through your class and how do you baseline you know just start us from the very very beginning okay and then yep. let's move let's move forward okay so the first thing we're going to ask is that you take the foundation courses foundation course number one is all of the con concepts all of the theories the um, information that we know is true and there's lots of references so you can always go out and and look at those references and find more references and more and more and so what would be an example give us one example of the references or yeah. what um so looking at um how bacteria look certain different okay. species or you look in the literature at how much nitrogen is actually in a fungal body in a fungal hypha um, so when carbon sequestration, we're wanting to pull all of that carbon that came out of our soils, and now it needs to go back into our soils. Um, so how do we do that? And we've discovered that if you can have a lot of fungi, we can be sequestering 11 gigatons uh, equivalent of CO2, 45 uh, equivalents, um, 84 equivalents. So working with uh, David Johnson at New Mexico State University, and what he works with is understanding uh, sequestration of carbon, and we're, we're working on the microorganisms that actually take that carbon and hold it in their bodies for uh, 500 years. Half-life on that, on those kinds of materials can be very long. So- Okay, now hang on, I got a question here. So can that, do you have a metric to measure that that amount of carbon that is being stored within those uh, those fungi? Do you have that metric? Um, we work with people who do that, and so I'm not the expert on. You know, we're always going to take where we were when we started our project, and so we know how much carbon was in that soil to begin no. with. And when you're looking in an agricultural field, it's less than 0.1 percent. It's almost undetectable in most cases because we have so destroyed what's yeah. going on in the soil. All of this um, carbon has blown off into the atmosphere. The only thing left in our um, agricultural soils that have been tilled and tilled and treated with all these toxic chemicals, the only thing left are uh, a bunch of uh, bacteria, not very many species. So there's really not much of anything to hold that carbon. And when these bacteria eat something that is right for them, they uh, have the enzymes to pull that nutrient in uh, organic matter inside their body and start decomposing it. A bacterium has to have a, a carbon to nitrogen ratio of five carbons for every one nitrogen. The food that bacteria eats is in general 30 carbons for every one nitrogen. And so mm. that bacterium has to get every last single nitrogen molecule, but it's got to now get rid of 29 uh, carbons. And so it blows that carbon off into the atmosphere as CO2. Whereas if we're looking at fungi, fungi may start at a CDN ratio at their tip of five to one, but you go to the next cell and it's 20 to one. And you go to the next cell and it's 100 to one. And you go to the next cell and it's 200 to one. So 
the growing tip is where all that nitrogen is going and the carbon oh. comes back and is laid down on the inside layer of the fungal hyphae. So you're not making the, the strand of fungal hyphae grow wider. It stays the same diameter, but the cell walls get thicker and thicker. And the reason the fungi do that is they don't want the microarthropods that are out there running around looking for fungi to eat. So when that microarthropod goes, ooh, look at that nice juicy fungus, tries mm -hmm. to take a bite, and those carbon reinforced carbon, you know, shields against being eaten by a microarthropod, microarthropod can't touch it. Turns around and goes away. It's got to find something else to eat today. Okay. So this then would lead into um, the reason why tillage has to stop because it's just the mass destruction of this of this the this whole hyphae that you just described is being built here yep. now now your plow see. is going to wipe out it's going to shred and slice and dice those fungal hyphae without any trouble yeah so now let's but let's look at is some tillage acceptable and if so what kind of tillage would you recommend if it at all recommended if you've had really bad weather and there was a you know a her huge mudslide or you know some catastrophic event or something that that caused um, all kinds of compaction out okay. in your field and a pond of yucky water sitting out there for two or three months that will do the job so there you would want to come back in and you would want to till that material but you want to be adding the organic matter as well as all of the organisms the bacteria and the fungi and the protozoa and the nematodes to get this nutrient cycling going you want to add all that back you want to do it in a gentle fashion so you know like a key line plow or a no a, a yeoman's plow those are not very destructive you the you know the tines are uh, um you know uh, 12 inches apart, maybe a little bit closer. And as those tines go through the soil, they're just kind of wiggling back and forth and causing all kinds of cracks to happen in that compacted soil underneath. Now, if we can get perennial plants growing as a cover on that soil, we will probably never again have to till that soil until a catastrophe happens again right. you know and they come every right. 50 years or 75 years and you got to just uh have that in your budget yeah now let's go back to your okay let's go back to this the the situation where you've got farmer a that is mass destruction it's tillage after every every cash crop blah 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 his fungal to, to bacteria ratio is probably 95% bacteria and 5% fungal. If okay. you're lucky. Yeah. yeah, I didn't want to go 100 because hardly anything's 100%, but okay. Now, let's then take that farmer A and he's come to you, you know, Elaine, I want to, I want to change. So what do we look, yeah, the first thing is we're all pumped up or yeah. Okay, my question is, I, and I know this is kind of a loaded question, it depends on where they are, what's the rainfall, what's the soil, I get all that. Yeah. But in general, what 
is this individual looking at as far as what do I get for my bang for my buck here? Is it one year, two year, three year? When am I going to see something change? And when do you see that fungal to bacteria start to balance out? Yep. Many people have pictures where they took a picture today and put the biology on. And by the next day, they're seeing differences in the color mm. of the leaves. Things that were yellow and looking like they were going to fall off and die, all of a sudden they're picking up and they've got a little bit of green in them. So you, some of the things are very rapid, especially where we're getting the bacterium fungi into the soil to listen to, and the, the plant is putting out exudates every second of every day to send messages to the right bacterial and fungal species in your soil and telling those species of bacteria and fungi what the plant wants. Pizza delivery guy, listen here. Yeah. I want pizza with tomatoes, extra tomato sauce and uh, sausage on it. And the bacteria and fungi go, well, as long as you're paying us and you know yeah. these wonderful food sources, sure, we'll make those enzymes. We'll pull them out of the uh, centers of the sands, the silts, the clays, the rocks, the pebbles, pull those nutrients out of that silica bilayer where that's where all these uh, nutrients as they wash down stream, they get held up in those sand silts and clays. So that's constantly being replenished inside those clays. And so now the bacterium fungi are pulling those nutrients out. They are holding those nutrients in their biomass and they're you know, going on about their job of helping the plant grow. But then that's going to attract the high numbers of bacteria and fungi around that root system are going to attract the things that eat bacteria and eat fungi. Mm -hmm. And so as soon as those microarthropods, as soon as the bacterial feeding nematodes, the protozoa, find those microorganisms, they chow down so that there's an excess amount of every nutrient being taken up by the predators, by those things that eat bacteria and fungi, there's too much of every nutrient in the bodies of the bacteria and the fungi. And so what's that poor little nematode supposed to do? Is it supposed to die? Or does it just poop out the nutrient that the plant wants? And it's right there at the surface of the root system. We don't detect those things very easily because that interaction is so fast that nematode or the microarthropod releases those nutrients and the plant says exactly what I wanted. I got my pizza delivered to the door. There yeah. is no soil on this planet that actually lacks the nutrients to grow plants. It's just that they're not in a soluble form. Go and take your neck, go and look at your, your um, soil chemistry test and start reading your soil chemistry test. And you'll notice that the nutrients that they're talking about in their test are only soluble nutrients. And the difference between soluble nutrients and the amount of total nutrients is, oh, about 30,000 parts per million. Yeah, that's quite a bit. Mm -hmm. You could grow you know, a couple of real good crops of um, your plants just with what that soluble that um total nutrient that's in the soil and then remember those nutrients are replenished every time it rains every time the snow melts 
they're moving those nutrients and the sand, silts, and clays pull those nutrients back into their silica bilayers so that your whole soil is ready for this year's crop. Oh, that's just incredible. Mm -hmm. um, so again, we got to go to the, the principles of soil health here. And number one in my, in my, is in my listing the hierarchy is, uh, is uh, mitigate, um, you know, soil disruption or chemical, uh, adding chemicals to this system. Because I gather what you're talking about here, everything you're talking about here is maintaining the life of the beneficials the best we possibly can. Yeah. Because they're, they're constantly at war with the, 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 the predators that prey on them all the time. Well, there's just so many bacteria, fungi that the the predators control the populations of bacteria and fungi from getting too high because yeah. you don't want lots and lots and lots and lots of bacteria everything just ends up in the bacteria and fungi and doesn't get released into uh, uh into that root system for the plant to take up so you want these predators around what balances those predators what's keeping them from overeating all the bacteria now there's nothing to take up the nutrients the pizza delivery boys are all oh. gone well something else is eating the protozoa and the nematodes oh. and the microarthropods so you got to have that next trophic level the next set of predator prey interactions okay. has to occur and you want to keep those guys from getting too saucy and you know eating everything so they've got to have predators Right. Who's the highest level predator in the system? I suppose you and, the human. You and me. Yeah, human yeah. beings. Yep. Yeah. So what can we do to wreck it? Well, we do a pretty good job of wrecking it every day, you know, for the most part. But it, it is a pretty resilient system if we would just stop and do. I mean, Elaine, I can't tell you. I mean, we're, you know, we've been no-till on this farm for 15 plus years. We've been no chemistry now on some fields for nine years. So to add the two together, we're no till and no chemistry for nine years. And what you see this, how you see this soil change, it, it just, I know it won't blow your mind, but it is unbelievable what, what can happen. I mean, yep. our aggregate stability is six to eight inches deep now. Yeah. You don't so, have um, compacted areas. You've got plenty, your roots can grow through there without you know having any trouble at all yeah. and your roots need to grow down through there to get to where we have the structures built by the bacteria and the fungi the protozoa and nematodes that stores water yeah so your roots can get to summer water and no matter how dry it is up here on the surface of the soil you've got all the water you need down at you know 10 feet six feet five feet some yeah. of our crops will grow as deep as 15 to 20 foot deep um, roots on them when they need to do that. They may not do that every year, but when they need it, they have access to that water. So stop paying money for irrigation. Right. Yeah. We, I tell you, it's kind of cool. Uh, and again, these, this stuff, this is just grade school for you, but the other day we were at a farm that we ha we have one center pivot okay i sometimes wish we didn't have any but we have one and believe it or not we're in a kind of a micro drought here 
and our tile was still running. The outlets were still running. So I said, let's go turn that pivot on and let's make a quick turn. And you know what happened. It pulled all that moisture up that we put on a half inch of rain and it was dry four inches down. The day after we ran that pivot of just a half inch, it was wet 12 inches down. It pulled that moisture up. And I'm assuming that as we're doing that, we're bringing those nutrients you're, you're referring to back in play. And then it's, it's another feeding frenzy. Right. Only if you've got the biology in the system. Yeah. Okay. So now let's go, let's just go to Indiana. That's where I live and farm. So let's talk Indiana here. Okay, so Elaine, I need some biology. What are you going to give a guy in Indiana or a gal? We're going to go, well, what we'd really like to do is work with some grower that wants to make the right sets of microorganisms available to everybody else. He becomes the caretaker of that process. And so he's going to go out and he's going to find some high nitrogen containing material like uh, alfalfa or you know, any one of the high nitrogen plants, uh, peas, yep. beans, all those things. And, uh, you know, might even take some manure if we can tell that it's good uh, manure, that the animals aren't getting a lot of antibiotics and aren't being treated to the chemical course. We need to get about um, 20%, 30% of our pile needs to be green material. And that means they still have the sap inside the um, the stem, they're still green. They still contain a lot of really good juicy sugars and proteins and carbohydrate, which are what bacteria specialize in consuming. And so, then uh, we need. A, I'm sorry, like, would a weed work here if you had a? Oh, absolutely. A, yeah, yeah, I mean, giant. I mean, they pull up tremendous amount. Of, uh, lamb's quarter, giant ragweed, uh, water hemp, tremendous. Yeah, yep. sorry, sorry to interrupt. Yep, but yeah, so let's finish the first idea and then I'll go to the second. So um, you need woody material. So about 60% of your pile needs to be woody material, but make certain that you've got a good mixture. The more kinds of foods you're putting into your compost piles of the three main components, the more diversity you have there, the more diversity of bacteria and fungi, protozoa, and nematodes, the more it does not matter anymore to you what this summer is going to be, because you've got organisms to take with, to deal with every situation with the more and more and more diversity that you can get back into that compost. So now in that compost, well, we have to compost very carefully because the good guys require aerobic conditions. The oh. bad guys require reduced oxygen. So if your field starts getting compacted for anything, any reason, you've lost your good guys and the bad guys are winning. Yeah. And that's why your yields start to fall so badly. Um, you know, and then you got to get out there with the pesticides and the inorganic fertilizers and all that. And one of the things we've seen is that when we're in that highly disturbed soil that has just bacteria in it, the um, form of nitrogen there is going to be nitrate. When we get to really good growing conditions where 
weeds are not present in your pasture, they're not part of your agricultural system, is when the ammonium has gotten really high. There's been researchers at the University of Tokyo and um, Japan uh, and another one, another, um, not going to pull it out of my head. So um, they've been researching these balances of nitrate and ammonium. And they show that if you want to be growing weeds, if you want to have a really bad weed problem, make sure all of your nitrogen is in the form of nitrate. Wow. If you don't want those weeds, then make certain that your uh, you've your the major form of nitrogen you have in your soil is NH4. Well, how do you do that? What is it that nature's been doing for the last oh three and a half billion years? What's she been doing to make certain that the uh, the weeds don't keep ruling? all you know all the time why is it succession occurs well when you've got plants that are very early in succession they're not producing a lot of cellulose they're not producing any bacterial foods so all those weedy species don't make the foods that will support the growth of the fungi in your soil so the bacteria win in that real early stage of succession but as new plants come in, as those bacteria are getting a little better, you're getting a few little fungi in there. Now that shifts the plant community to be something intermediate. Now we've got nitrate that's come down to 95 or 90% of the nitrogen is nitrate, but 10% is ammonium. And so you get a completely different plant community and we don't really think of those plants as being weeds. Now get an equal biomass of fungi and bacteria, and we have no weeds at all. Or if there are weeds present, it's the weeds that are sick and unhappy and unhealthy. So make certain the chemistry in your soil has got the right microorganisms in there to do the job that will get rid of these problems for us. Okay. Just imagine not having to put any glyphosate out. Yeah, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying and I see it. I, I call it progression. Um, you know, broadleaf weeds are first, then grass, then shrubs, trees. Um, I, I've seen it, I see it every day. Um, but, you know, I guess what I'm getting, what I'm, how do I wanna ask this question? Um, how do we do this on, on 2000 acres? And how do we, how do we make sure that we can we, we're doing everything we can do to get get to back and do you want balance or do you want to be a little heavy fungi you know you want to do you want to be 60 40 i mean is that what your is that what your goal is and that depends on the plant that you're growing and so a lot of our research is when we're growing plants under really healthy conditions in in good soil with good biology in it we start out with everything just about the same and we watch very carefully what the plant, what changes are the plants doing to the biology in the soil. And as we see this plant is pumping a lot, out a lot more fungal foods and the fungi are taking off, we've got 75% fungi and 25% bacteria, then we, we're starting to figure out where in succession, where in progression. Mm 
your plants are sitting. So you see a plant that starts pumping out a lot of bacterial foods, then the bacteria are going to go way up and your fungi might go way down. So we want to watch that. And how do you watch that? You get a microscope and we can teach you how to use that microscope in one day so that you can be looking at now is this uh, my bacteria getting way too high or my bacteria getting way too low? Um, I got to, you know, my fungi could be doing the same thing. And then how can we control those microorganisms by understanding what the sand, what the, um, you know, what the bacteria and fungi are doing. So. But, okay. So Elaine, if you've got a, if you've got a customer that's in, in Iowa, whatever, and you've already determined by, by this research on his farm, that corn puts out exudates that does this, or maybe not corn's not the right example, or maybe, maybe uh, cereal rye, maybe cereal rye that puts out this type of exudate that is, is bad for bacteria, but good for fungi. Do you already have that documented? In a lot of instances, yes. For okay, most of our crops that people grow, we've, we've done that long, long ago. The yeah. things that we sometimes don't know about are the alien invaders. And we haven't looked at them yet. So, you know, it would be nice to have a little more money, but we're working on it. Well, okay. So let's go to, let's go to two thoughts here on what you've just described. How does pH affect this if it does? And, um, you know, you, you answer that. And let me think, I had a second question. I just lost it. Does pH affect this? Absolutely. But pH is controlled by the microorganisms in your soil. Bacteria, aerobic bacteria, tend to put out a lot of alkaline waste products. And so if you've got lots and lots of bacteria growing in an aerobic condition, your pH is gonna be going up and up and up. Uh, some of the best um, stands of uh, alfalfa grown in the state of Nevada are in soil that has a pH of 12. Wow. And most people just like, that's not possible. Yes, it is. If you've got the biology and the organic matter in your soil, not a problem. pH is not a big controller of plants. It's a controller of the microorganisms. So when you start getting uh, more fungi starting to grow, the fungi produce organic acids as their major um, exudate. And so the uh, with the... Uh, fungi coming in, um, that pH, instead of being up there at 12, is going to be at 8. Pretty soon it's at 7. Pretty soon it's somewhere between 6 and 6.5. Most of our row crops, certainly all of our shrubs, all of our trees, require slightly acidic soil. Not You don't want it going down deeper than less than 5.5. Now, blueberry grows at 5.5. It's got a lot of fungi around its root system, but it does not grow best at a pH of 4.5. If you understand what's going on in the biology in, biology in the soil, um, you have helpers that will happily do all this work for you. Instead of you out there spraying with some acid trying to get it, you know, lower down the acid, uh, the uh, um, alkaline conditions or trying to put on a lot of lime or gypsum to get some uh, flocculation going that doesn't last yeah 
when we're getting all these right microorganisms back and the right um, uh, um, amounts, uh, those organisms are going to stay there forever. And so you do not have to go back every year. Once you get these organisms in there and they're established, they're established for as long as Mother Nature will let them alone and not no no catastrophic events happening. Yeah, yeah, I understand. And that that goes back to your point at the beginning where you no longer you no longer need these synthetic attributes because you've got the biology doing it for you. Yep. I, I totally understand that. Now, here was my second question. I just thought of it. OK, so now let's go. Let's go to back to Indiana, back to me. And I'm out here trying to grow diversity and I'm trying to grow biomass. So now how does the carbon to nitrogen ratio of the cocktails that I'm planting affect this fungal and bacterial growth or depletion that you just described? How does that affect it? You need to know um each of the different kinds of materials that you're putting on you need to know whether there are really complex structures within that material you're putting out that's going to select for fungal growth fungi produce lots of different kinds of enzymes and they release it from their bodies so it's got an enzyme over here chewing on this really nasty structural piece of you know, lots of carbon in there, very little nutrients. Well, the, the uh, fungus has ways to deal with that. So those nutrients come back to the fungus. Bacteria, on the other hand, uh, typically only um, use, uh, will only produce one enzyme at a time. So if it's looking at a sugar, simple sugar, that bacterium can only chow down on two of the carbons and split it off and get those nutrients then it's got to come back chew the next one chew the next one well what if there happens to be a branch and now you've got a carbon 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 the bacteria has got to shut down the the uh, factory and say we are rechanging everything around so we can make this enzymes that will break down that three-way um, bind to those three different carbons. So, so very inefficient. Yeah, yeah, and that's why bacteria do really well on really long carbohydrate chains, where it's the same structure all the way along. And you cannot possibly eat that thing up as fast as a bacterium would do it. Yeah. So one, that one enzyme, zip, and all that energy has gone to the bacterium. Okay. But when you get more structurally complex um, types of foods, then that's going to be uh, fungus heaven. So how so, do you control fungi and bacteria? What kind of foods are you putting out? So how how do we deter? How do we where do we go to to say that or to find this information that if you want a balanced diet for your your area, you need to plant these eight species? How do we know this? Um, we're not going to, I'm not quite sure what you mean by plant these eight species. What eight species uh, of what? In a cocktail. In a cocktail. So uh, different kinds like, of foods. Yes. Like cereal rye, oats, cow peas, radish, 
How do we know what the combination needs to be? Because we've been looking at that for a long time. And all those things that you just mentioned have to have a fungal to bacterial biomass ratio that's up around one. One um, microgram of fungi to one microgram of bacteria. And as long as we've got those balanced, then that seems to work really well for the growth of those plants. Now, you know, we do have interesting, we learn things about the um, particular cultivars. The longer people use them, we get to understanding, oh, this cultivar likes this kind of uh, bacterium or these kinds of fungi better. So if you want this instead of that, mm. but, you know, how much, how, how important is that? Um, it's going to increase your yields by five to 10%. Well, when we get the right biology out there, just as long as we're getting it more or less correct, your plant is then what going to come along and the plant is going to be putting out those exudates that promote precisely the species that that plant wants. So we don't have to worry about that as much. The plant is perfectly capable of taking care of itself if we just give them all the right microorganisms in that root system. Yeah. Get that established and there's nothing that's going to you know, harm your, your, your corn again. So if you have problems growing corn right now, I'd say you don't quite have everybody home that you need to have. Oh, so I agree with that. I totally agree with that. Yep. So where are we going to find them? That, that becomes an interesting question. So we just kind of have to get out there and, and start checking everything that's possible. I'm going to have to enroll in the school, it sounds like. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so you can teach me. Yeah, we, we can teach you what we've learned, and then you come in back and apply it uh, for yourself. We, we have yeah. consultants all over the world that we've been teaching, and they have been accumulating a lot, a lot of this real specific stuff. So it's always useful to have that connection with some of the consultants that are around you. So right. when you're in a, a real, gosh, I just don't, don't understand what's going on here. You can right. give them a call and they can explain what's probably happening. Come out, take a look, take some samples, do the microscope work for you. Um, most people like to learn how to use that microscope yeah. by themselves because most of the time you can figure it out. You don't have to know that I've got 5.13467 micro whatever microliters of this food that it, we just don't have to operate at that precise a level as long as we know it's around five yeah yeah well i've got a microscope and and i use it occasionally probably not enough but i use it occasionally um so i kind of know what you're referring to mm -hmm. um elaine we have a question here from uh fred mike cell i hope i pronounced that correct fred uh, Elaine, in a degraded soil with little microbial activity, are the missing microbes still in the soil in an inactive state, which can become active again in the, in the right conditions, or does this soil biology have to be added? That's a great question. Because the toxic materials that we've been putting on for the last, you know, 50, 100 years, because they're so toxic, 
the organisms are gone. When you use your microscope, you can't find them. The only things that you look at, and because of morphology, we know that this is a disease-causing fungus or bacterium. We look at the fungi that are left, and it's only those fungi that can um, you know, change their genetic structure fast enough that they can always keep up. They are resistant to all of these different versions of the toxic chemicals. And so they're the only fungi that are left in your soil. Well, it's not soil. If you don't have the bacterium, fungi, protozoa, and nematodes to do all of this work for you, it's not soil, it's dirt. Yeah. Um, so we've got to get that inoculum back. We, we've got to go to the you know, forests and take little tiny samples. Don't, you, don't need, you don't even need a teaspoonful, just a pinch. And that goes into um, your container where you're going to inoculate your compost with this mix. And that's where we would really like to have that, that consultant there with you when you're starting to do any uh, making your own compost. Or maybe you don't want to um, go into the job of making compost. You've already got so many other things to do. One more big job like that just seems like uh, tear your hair out. So the consultants are making the compost. And so you can buy that from them. Um, and, and that would be a, a easy way to go about it. You get that biology back into your soil. And after a couple of years, you don't need that compost anymore. Yeah. We've got a couple of reactors going right now. I, 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 I think we built them very similar to what you just described. Uh, we've got some alfalfa in there. We've got uh, we've got some green material and we've got some wood material. So yep. we'll see. Keep, keep the balances. Is it a, is it, is it one of the Johnson Sioux that, yeah. that you do? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I like that method when you have lots of, you know, you're, you're not in a hurry because yeah. that method takes like a year. Um, we do the thermal compost that's faster because, you know, I, I can't seem to make plans far enough in advance to have all the compost I need. And it only takes about 20, 21, 28 days to make a good thermal compost if you know what oh. you're doing. And, and, and I mean, how can, how could I, Elaine, I was, I'm going to go out and I need to foliar feed a thousand acres of corn in the next 10 or in the next 30 days. How many, how many reactors do I, I mean, how big of an area do we need to have here? Um, typically, um, because uh, tea is going to have foods to help those microorganisms grow, mm -hmm. we're taking, you know, maybe six pounds of your compost and we're going to convert it into 10,000 gallons of really good tea. So okay. You don't need massive amounts. So how, you know, you can be spraying 200 acres with that amount of tea. We want to be looking at your soil. We want to be noticing what's missing. So you've got a, you know, you're going to have a, you know, um, phytophthora of some kind because you're missing this group of microorganisms. We want to make sure we're adding those microorganisms into that tea brewer. And, and at high enough concentrations. And we can, you, your company can supply those products as well. Yeah. 
Okay. And because they're typically, we've learned which ones they are in the um, biome that you're in. And we'll make sure, certain that we are promoting the conditions that will get those organisms, the fungi, that will compete with and um, consume and, um, and get, get rid of those bad guys from your system. Okay, so uh, again, I want to go back now to this baseline concept. Okay, so are you, I'm sure you're requiring a, a soil sample to be taken. And if so, I mean, is it, is it, a, is it an Elaine Ingham test? Is it a Haney Health test? I mean, what is it? What are you running this soil through? What's your first test? It's to um, put way out enough of the soil into a test tube. And so then we add water to do a dilution and mm -hmm. shake for a certain number of shakes. And a drop of that uh, dilution goes onto the microscope slide, cover slip on top of it, and we start looking. Um, so this, through, this, is an, this is an Elaine test then? Yep, it's yeah. an Elaine test. It's a soil food web test. Okay. All right, so that's how you're going to draw your baseline. And then I assume, obviously, a trained eye is going to know what a lot of those uh, things flying. I mean, they're moving under there when you get this <laughs> under a microscope. Yep. So are you trying to do a count? Are you trying? I mean, what are you looking at here at this point? With, um, with the bacteria, it's just a simple count. But okay. with fungi, uh, because they can be really long or they may be really short, we've got to measure the hyphal length and measure the diameter. So with bacteria, we can convert the count into biomass, and we will convert that fungal information into the biomass of fungi. So that's where we get this fungal to bacterial biomass ratio. I see. Okay. And that's why we already have a real good idea of what that progression is, is as you go through succession, which organism, which plants require which balance of fungi to bacteria. See, this is this is exactly uh, oh man, you're you're blowing my mind here because this is exactly what I talk about. Um, I, I don't know this, but I just say one, you know, we're going to be prescribing certain cocktails of certain species that are going to then create an environment that giant ragweed doesn't want to grow or germinate in. That's exactly what you're talking about here. Exactly. Yeah. And it's really easy to set up conditions that are not going to allow that ragweed or whatever thistle whatever it is you don't want yeah. um, you just have to get the balance of bacteria to fungi really that's all you need okay so now now we've got to think scale here again so unfortunately unfortunately we've got 300 horsepower tractors that weigh quite a bit we try to do the best we can but compaction is inevitable so can we mitigate this compaction enough with a living root to keep this system chugging along? Your plants are gonna need some help from the microorganisms in the soil. Because when you look at uh, well, well um, aggregated soil, uh, the bacteria 
they are the things that are gluing themselves to the surfaces of the sands and the silts. And they will then grab a piece of organic matter out of the soil solution as it's going to buy, going by. They're going to grab something else and start making the microaggregates because mm -hmm. they're taking all these microaggregate micro materials and pulling them in and gluing them. That means now you've got more airspace. Right. Now you've got to have the fungi coming in because the fungi are the strands that bind around aggregate number one, aggregate number two gets pulled in three, four, five, and now you have condominium housing for bacteria. And we've got to keep building that structure. And that structure is going to be built every second of every day, daytime, nighttime, the bacteria and fungi don't stop. So we, especially in a compacted soil, we've got to make sure we've got all those organisms back out there and doing their jobs of building that structure. And then we don't ever want to put on toxic chemicals. We don't ever want any inorganic fertilizers put out there because those things kill the organisms yeah. who are maintaining your soil's fertility. Yeah. So, so you're saying, okay, now, all right. So I've signed up. I'm, I'm a, I'm a customer now or client, whatever you, whatever your term is. And I call up somebody, it's probably not going to be you, but I call up somebody and say, hey, I, I've got a compaction problem here. Um, I know I do. What are we going to do to leave that? You're saying, you're saying that you can come up with this, this, this um, what do you call it, a thermo, your, your, your compost? Yeah. yeah, thermophilic. Yeah, you could build something and have this to be able to be put on in 30 days, let's say, and help alleviate that compaction. Yep. Do it all the time. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. It's uh, we just have to put Mother Nature back where she's supposed to be. And we've got well, to stop killing you're, you're, her. You're, you're, <laughs> no, I understand all that, Lane, but you're, you're, you're talking way up here. I mean, you are way over what I can comprehend, or not what I can comprehend, but what I can, I can talk about. So this is fa absolutely fascinating. Okay, so let me go and let me throw out one more thing here. Foxtail, tell me, you're right off the top of your head right now, why do I have foxtail in certain fields? Um, because you have conditions that are selecting for the foxtail. So your bacterial biomass is too high. You've got more of the bad guy bacteria in there than you've got good. Uh, your fungi are probably non-existent practically where the foxtail is. And okay. now you've got to start looking at the water. You know, is it soggy out there? The fox, well, you know, the foxtail tends to like that sort of situation. Right. So how can we improve the drainage in your field? So we got to get in there. And again, the bacteria and fungi got to start building micro aggregates and macro aggregates so that all that water drains into the local pond where you could use that then to water your own land if you needed. We want the we want all the water to infiltrate down straight down and then be held in pores down there at six feet or 10 feet so that there is a nonstop supply of water that the roots can get to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I see it. I mean, it all makes total sense. But I guess, Elaine, I, what I'm so per, so perplexed about is that you could build a, a, a compost tea in 30 days 
that will help alleviate that that problem. That that to me is fascinating, fascinating. And I guess it goes back to okay. So let's take Fred's question there, but let's don't quite go as far as Fred's saying uh, degraded soils. Okay, let's go to my farm now. We've not used any of these synthetic inputs for nine years. I've still got some foxtail issues, some some probably due to the, the heavy machinery, some compaction. So you could you could build a cure for me fairly quickly then, is what you're saying. Yeah, because we can be more specific there. We don't have a hundred different problems. We've got yeah. five problems. Yeah. And a yeah. lot easier for us to see what's missing in your soil and be able to provide it. That's great. That is absolutely great. And you and Elaine, you are around the world. I mean, you've got you've got people all the way around the world, correct? Correct. Yeah. Yep. So I work with uh, people in uh, the Philippines, in uh, India, in uh, South Africa, up in Ethiopia, in in Egypt. We have people in the Ecuador, Brazil, several different places, uh, Costa Rica. Uh, yeah, we have people around the world. Yeah, yeah, that, that's great. Now, I want to read, a, uh, most people know who Dr. Dave Johnson is from, from New Mexico, but he's got a nice quote here, and I want to read this. If you want to grab a drink, Elaine, or something, uh, Dr. Elaine's soil, soil food web approach is an effective and viable means of rapidly regenerating agricultural soils, enabling farmers to operate without the use of chemical inputs thus protecting the world's waterways, insect, and animal populations. Restoring the soil food web to agricultural soils restores productivity and profitability to agriculture and results in substantial levels of carbon sequestration. Maybe you're just checking off box after box here and has the potential if implemented on a global scale to return atmospheric carbon to the safe level as identified by the IPCC. Yep. It's perfect. Yep. It's absolutely perfect. Thank you. So do you, do you think that mother nature has given, let's just pick on two, two, two L, P and K. Let's just talk about P and K here. Do you think mother nature has supplied this world, this earth, with enough P and K to last how long? Till the end of the planet. Till the end of the planet. I've never that, heard of that's a long time. Yeah, because Mother Nature cycles things and she doesn't let any pool in that cycle get overboard because then you cause problems and she will send the proper organisms to deal with that problem. So that yeah. cycle human beings have been really good at putting big blockages in those cycles and it means a lot of human beings die it means a lot of plants and a lot of her, her other critters are killed because of it and why i just don't, i don't understand human beings that think that we know better than mother nature you know it's sort of like saying to yeah. god we know it's better arrogant. than you what do we need with you that's uh, pretty arrogant yeah yeah horribly yeah. So I mean, you got, you know, you've got David Montgomery's written several wonderful books, and and I believe one of the first ones he had was, uh, you know, the civilizations. When the agriculture is gone, the civilization is gone, mm -hmm. and 
at the rate that the United, the United States is a very young country as far as being populated by, by us. And we've managed to destroy about half of it in a pretty short amount of time. Yeah. So can, I mean, obviously we can stop the degradation and it sounds like we can start to reheal it as well. So, you know, if we were to, okay, what would be your, if, if, if Elaine was in charge for, for an hour here, <laughs> what would be the first, I mean, would you want cover crops to be planted on everything? Would you want no-till? I mean, what would you want? We've got to go out and uh, start making really good compost. And so we've got to go to the, all of those different places within this bioregion and start making compost for this bioregion. And then I would want to get into to, let's get these organisms back into the soil. So we start rebuilding all of these seven different things that um, the, these microorganisms do for us. Yeah, yeah, this it's just, I mean, Elena, that just sounds so simple. I mean, how could that be the answer? You know what I mean? Well, I mean, it took me 45 years to figure it out. You know, it's not yeah. something that happened overnight. It's been yeah. here slowly but surely being worked on for and all of this time. Don't take my comment wrong. I don't mean that, that, that I don't mean this in any derogatory way. I just mean that we I'm just we're just so blinded because we when you sit back and listen to all of the people talking about these carbon markets and all of this complexity they're putting into it. And and maybe I'm gonna ask you this question. I ask every audience that I talk to, would somebody please raise your hand and tell me what metric there is out there that will measure carbon in the soil profile accurately, repeatably, and cheaply. Is there such a device? There's problems with all of the ways of trying to detect carbon. Um, and so you're always stuck with um, where did this really complex molecule come from over here? And uh, how do we get the CO2 up that's up in the atmosphere or the methane that's up in the atmosphere to, to get back into that structure? We don't know exactly how. And we do have to account for the carbon that's already in that soil. But yeah. most of our agricultural soils are at less than 0.1% organic matter. So there is no carbon in our dirt to speak no. of. So any improvement, you know, why do we have to quibble about 0.00001? Um, I'll, you know, go ahead, pretend it's been there for a long time. But I just increased the amount of carbon in my soil by about 11 uh, megatons per um for for that um, co2 that's been put away in the soil we did that much and you go back um eight years ten years and soil scientists were saying it's not possible to regenerate carbon in the soil of an agricultural system it's just not possible <laughs> right because of mass destruction is occurring though that's right and so yeah. we start putting on the organic matter. We, anytime you harvest a crop, you leave most of the residue on that soil surface. If you've got good organisms in your soil, those organisms are gonna decompose that and turn it into some of these really complex forms. You don't have to do anything except to harvest your crop. 
And these organisms will do this work for you so you can get another check saying I sequestered yada yada more uh, uh, carbon. And I, I don't really care how you measure it. You're going to make a boatload of money yeah. if you followed these this kind of pathway. Yeah, yeah, understand. All right, we've got a question from Michael Erdman. How important is organic carbon, parentheses, short chain carbon, parentheses, for a food source for the fungi? Most soils we test here in Illinois have a bacteria to fungi ratio of five to one to 10 to one with a corn soybean rotation. Seems like our humus is burned up and we lost our food for the fungi. Yeah. Exactly. He's uh, diagnosing his problem right on. The question yeah. is, how do you fix it? And that's where we've got to have the compost that we're making has more complex food resources in it with the way we manage the organisms through that composting um, period. We managed to get some really nice complex humics and fulvic acids in the compost. Yeah. Well, Elaine, real quick, we're not done here, but real quick, what's your web web page? How do how are people gonna get a hold of you and view your school and all that? Yep. So the uh, general website uh, is info at soilfoodweb.com. Um, we have a website, soilfoodweb.com, where there's uh, really great animations about the different um, uh, ways, the benefits that really good biology give to you. We've got hundreds of different um, uh, examples, soil uh, success stories from the students that have been going through the school. Um, we've got lots of, uh, well, lots of things to uh, keep you interested. Uh, go in and, and have some fun looking through our website. And then sign up to take the classes. The uh, foundation classes are uh, the the first one is going through all of the uh, um, the um, theoretical stuff that you need to know. You know, make certain that you have the background to understand. And then we teach we go through how do you make compost um, at a small scale, and we go through at a large scale. And then we do a compost extract. And compost tea is the third foundation course that we teach you how to do that. And then we teach you how to use the microscope. So now that you've started making good compost, you can see what makes it good. You can see whether the fungi are in there, whether you've got the protozoa, whether you've got the good guy nematodes or you got the bad guy nematodes. How do you fix bad guy nematodes? That's very easy because we got all, all kinds of predators. And so we'll make certain that you get those guys back into your compost or soil. Usually we don't have any problem with the compost. So we, um, then the next one okay. is. No, I'm sorry, go ahead, Elaine. You, you're, go, go right ahead, I interrupted. So the, um, the, the four foundation courses are the basics that help you as a grower be able to, to start doing these things for yourself. Find a, con, a consultant near you that will kind of hold your hand for the next couple of years so you get really comfortable. Then if you decide that you want to become uh, a laboratory where you're going to be taking samples for people and running those samples and then talking to them about what's in their soil or compost or teas, whatever, 
um, you can do that, open up your own lab. Um, or you can go on to becoming a consultant. And right now we have people, um, they stay at home because everything we do is virtual. You're, you don't have to come out to Corvallis and, and be there for the next six years while you finish all of this up or um, you know, come back and forth, back and forth. Everything's virtual on the computer. Um, and you then wanna have a mentor to help you through that last step of becoming a consultant where you've got to make the compost tea yourself. You've got to make the compost extract yourself. Nobody else gets to help you. And then make your compost as well. And then you have to do a project where you convert dirt back into soil in some ecosystem. So you got to take your compost make the extracts, make the teas, apply them and show that you have shifted the soil from dirt to whatever plant it is that you want to grow. You've got the right biology to grow that, uh, that um, type of uh, plant and you'll be able to uh, be in our Hall of Fame, which is a successful case study. That's awesome. And what I really like is that you said you could do all this online. So can you go at your own pace then? Is that what you're, is that kind of what you're saying? Okay, great. Because yep. we, okay. we know how it is in your life. You know, one of your kids comes up and in the next two weeks you're spending doing some special project with them or something. And so you just can't be, um, you can't not be pulled away. And, right. and we understand that sort of thing. You've got like three years to go through. Um, and you, you know, could go through and you could do three um, lectures in one day or two or however many you've got time to do. So you get through things pretty fast. We had one person who actually made it all the way from the beginning of the foundation courses through to the last um, of the um, laboratory training programs in six weeks. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, folks, I am definitely going to be looking this up and probably join uh, her series of classes because this is exactly where I want to. Sp I'm 58 years old, Elaine, and I figure I got about 15 more tries until the next generation is going to kick the old man out. So I, this is where I want to be. I want to be working on on hormones and and how do we in you know what are we missing here we've got to get something that the biology's there i just don't have it all turned on yet and that to me is so frustrating so i'm hoping you can help me find some answers here yep uh, uh, we'll go out on safari and collect um organisms for you to get back into your compost yeah that'd be great we got we got some questions piling up jim's asking is wheat straw and corn stalks considered good woody sources for biocomplete compost? Um, yeah, most of the time. It kind of depends on how long it's been since you uh, removed them from the plant. So if there's still some green when you take down your crop, um, you've got some, some things that you might want to let them dry down a little bit more and become truly woody. But the stalks, you know, the, if it's real leathery, the, it's really hard to pull the uh, leaves apart. And yes, that's, that would probably be woody. 
Okay. Wide, right. wide carbon and nitrogen ratios upwards of around 100 carbons for every one nitrogen. That's what you want. That's what you're yep. saying. Right. Now, yep. I mean, cereal rye at Anthesis is probably 80 to 1 or 70 to 1. Yep. So real mm. close. Um, but yeah. it's still going to give your bacteria a little bit. So see where you can, you've got to think about the three different percentages and you realize that, uh, you know, half of the uh, rye grass is going to be 70% and the other half is, or the other 30% is in the woody. So you have to just mentally put it together, uh, get it working. You know, I think, okay, I don't know if you are aware of this, uh, doctor, but I've been diagnosed as a type two diabetic within the last two years. Okay. I attribute that to my, my, my poor eating habits that I had away from home. I mean, when you, you know, when you're traveling and you're on the road, it is hard to eat healthy. Okay. Yeah. Now, you know, it's amazing. You don't know anything about, about a problem until you have the problem. Then you try to learn everything there is about it. Yeah. Um, but when I sit here and think about, you know, you look at a diet for a type two diabetic and what they kind of do now is if you've got a food that you're getting ready to eat that has 20 grams of protein in it and it has 26 grams of carbs, it's net six. Okay. I think the same thing's going on with what you're talking about in this soil biology. You get, you get these offsets of something you know high in carbon to nitrogen ratio comes in but something else is coming in to offset and bring that that down is that correct i think so you know it's some some things we still have to do some research on and that's one of them how what's offsetting which um we're going to get how many units of bacteria out of this and uh, and they're going to leave behind some uh, kind of nasty, very complex uh, waste compounds that yeah. that's really going to grow some fungi. So it's not all bacterial food. It's okay. So we got to learn some of that so we can fine tune a bit. Yeah. I mean, sometimes uh, unintended consequences are a good thing sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. So, yep. Yeah. Okay. We've got a, a, a it's more of a, a comment here from Haven. Uh, I hope it's Trahan, Trahan, not sure. Hi, Dr. Ingham. Can you tell Rick and everyone about the Save Soil Movement and ConsciousPlanet.org? Well, it, this is a global um, um, thing that's happening. One of the, uh, um, I can't remember the, the whole name, but he's been doing uh, bicycling across uh, different continents. Um, trying to bring to awareness uh, what we're doing to try to get all of that carbon back in the soil. And then let's not destroy our, our soils again. We've got to not only save our soil, but then we've got to respect it. And yeah. so he's been traveling around. I expect Johan can tell you better than I can what all their, what all is being done by that group. So um, I would encourage you all to go to their website and yeah. take a look at what uh, is going on with that group because the leaders of this group aren't, you know, like grabbing money out of the pot. They're serious about trying to get carbon back into the soil from whence it came. 
and let's you know use it responsibly and not uh, arrogantly. Right. And folks, that's consciousplanet.org. It's in the chat, C-O-N-S-C-I-O-U-S planet.org. Great, great, great. Uh, Shannon Pickering, hi there, good evening. Uh, how is the compost applied? Is there specific equipment requirements to do this? Thanks, wonderful information. This is wonderful information, yes. Yep. When you're doing a, a field where you've harvested the crop and there's nothing, you know, really left, um, you're just going to, um, you know, use uh, whatever equipment kind of throws the compost out pretty evenly. Um, we're, we typically puts about we put about half a ton per acre out, so we're not putting massive amounts. We're getting the inoculum out there. And then we want to come back in the first year that you do this, we're going to want to come back and we're want to, going to want to do either a key line uh, plow or a yeoman plow where we're getting all those cracks and crevices. And on the back sides of the tines, you put down PVC pipe that has a couple of holes down at the bottom. So as you're breaking open your soil, um, these organisms in that liquid are pushed into all those cracks and crevices. So we start building the structure in the soil ra as rapidly as possible. So, um, you know, we're going to then check and see in the next um, couple days, come back and see how much the biology has been improved by those first applications. Yeah. Typically, then when we go in, uh, we want to soak your seed in the compost tea because then you get the outside of your seed completely coated with all these really great microorganisms. And so what we see is the seeds will germinate and start to grow um, half the time that, as, nor, as uh, seed that's coming from a strictly chemical system. And we see much higher germination rates. We've been doing studies with uh, the USDA in um, Utah on that question in the, in the, in the, um, uh, when, when, a, when you, when seeds are down, how, what determines whether they're really going to survive or not. And so we see uh, uh, a requirement for only one rainfall event when we have treated those seeds with the right biology. Whereas typically with um, normal grasses, for example, you would have to have three um, storms, three thunderstorms or three rainfall events would have to happen at exactly the right time for those seeds to be able to germinate. Oh, wow. And so you get very low germination. So they're really excited about those results. What? And it's so easy to just soak your, your seeds in a minor amount of compost tea or as, you know, as, as you're um, planting, you want to have all, uh, all a good drip of the compost tea so that as that um, seed is falling down the tine, uh, you're getting a good application of the compost tea on top. And then the tine before we like to have you be putting a compost extract out. So we get, we get huge germination results. Everything germinates and starts growing. Um, 
So then we want to come back after that and do another assessment of the soil. Um, what's missing still, or do you have everything in your soil? And um, it, you know, we just make certain to keep putting more biology out, keep putting more biology out for as long as necessary. So we get to the levels that your plant requires. Yeah, that's fascinating. So let's talk. Uh, there's more questions, but I want to stay on this question here. I got one. I ha I'm going to add to this question. Okay, so so Doc, we've got this reactor going. Um, extract. We need an extractor, right, to make a, a compost heat. So what what is your flavor of choice there? What what kind of extractor do you like? What's it going to cost an individual? Go. What do you think? Basically, an extractor or a tea brewer, and you do you use the same equipment for both um so you, it needs to be a cone tank you uh when you look at the um the cone on the bottom you want a good slope on that because mm -hmm. you're gonna um, have a put a air pump on the bottom so that as things slide down they're pushed back up into the water and then they right. come back around and then then pushed up. We put a bag with the compost in it. And sometimes we'll, um, if it's kind of sludgy compost, we'll actually put a, um, a metal pipe in with holes so that you're getting constant movement of that compost so we can extract all of the organisms off those surfaces. We need to have, be around 80% or 80 PSI in order to remove the really well stuck on bacteria. And we want some of those really good guys to build structure in your soil. So with uh, compost extract, you only keep it in that system for maybe five minutes, 10 minutes max. You take the bag out, you squeeze it down, and now you've got your extract to go put into the seed production or you know drip out onto the soil. Um, or if we're gonna um, do um, where we've got large quantities of water of the, of the extract going on the soil, we can use the, mach the machinery you already have for spraying things out. We're gonna make really, really careful that you don't have any residues of the toxic chemicals that would be killing your organisms. Right. And so we can always tell when you have gone over that edge You've gotten rid of all the toxic chemicals because all of the organisms we put in with the compost extract actually stay alive. Yeah, they don't die. Yeah. 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 So, so how do you know? Okay, so you you've got this you've got this black whatever that's 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 formed after these days of of your thermo whatever I forget the word I'm sorry. Um, Thermophilic. So, Thermophilic. Loving. Like, Damn. Yeah, thermophilic, Thermo and it's P-H-Y-L-I-C, and okay. teaching you Latin again. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate that. So, okay, so we take out six pounds, I think you said that earlier. You do this process you just described, and we get, let's say we've got now um, uh, 200 gallons of a liquid tea now. So what's the what's my rate? Is it four ounces to the acre? Is it twelve? I mean, what's the rate? 
And this depends on the biology in the tea or the extract. Sorry, we're working with extracts. So how concentrated is that biology in the extract? And how closely is that going to uh, allow us to get the missing organisms in your soil back up to where they want to be? So sometimes we go out and apply, um, you know, 20 gallons of the compost extract per acre, because that's all we need. Sometimes we're putting out 200. Sometimes we've actually put out 2,000. So really bad situations that are in really bad, and it's really important for the grower to get a crop off of that, uh, we'll do some pretty astounding amounts. Uh, mm. But it's all based on what you, do you need in the soil as compared to what we can extract. If we really need lots of organisms, we may extract a second six um, pounds into that same liquid. We check the tea or we check the extract. And if we're not quite there, we'll put another six pounds and extract the organisms off of that. And so you can see we can get this really concentrated. Yeah. Okay. So just so we're all clear here, what you're putting in this big tea bag, that's called the extract. And then what is left after you've got this 80 PSI water movement, and, and I'm, I'm going to come back to water, but then what's left after that is the tea, correct? Well, no, I've misled, I've misspoke too many times, I guess. So when we've got the bag of compost and we're the tea bag going up and down, but uh, it, when it's just that we've extracted for a short pre period of time and that's all oh. we've done, that's the extract. That's the okay. liquid in that um, um, extractor. When we okay. make a compost tea, we're going to put the bag in the middle. We're going to just like the extraction. We're going to do exactly the same thing. But now when we pull that tea bag out, we're going to add foods to get the bacteria to grow, to get the fungi to grow. So we're multiplying the actual organisms in that extract. And so after 24 hours or 48 hours, depending on the temperatures outside, we will have doubled or tripled the amount of those organisms. So we go from 1 million bacteria to 6 million ba bacteria. Okay. Um, and is that like with through humates and stuff like that? And, and right. Yep. Fulvic acid and stuff. Okay. Okay. Fish hydrolysates. Yeah. All those good things. Yeah. Okay. So now water. Okay. Do you need to have your water tested on your farm? Do you want to determine if that water works or do we need RO water? What do we need here? You really want to go after the water in your own wells so that, that all the normal um, ratios of nutrients in your water, that's what you're going to put on the land. That's what we've got to, it has okay. to select for those organisms that okay. are going to grow very well on that kind of water. Now, if, you know, if, if somebody has a heavy metal problem that's been leaching into your wells, we're going to have to do something about that. Um, yeah. Or we've got to use a different well, something, you know, so we do want you to check your water quality 
and make sure that it's going to grow some good sets of microorganisms. But you make an excellent point because the water that now has come from that well started up on the surface and has gone all the way down through this whole profile, been filtered out. So that's exactly, yeah, that's exactly right. But still, it would behoove everyone to get your water. You need to know what you're drinking. So get your water tested and, and see what's in there. Okay. Yep. We got all kinds of questions piling in here. We we've got Ed Bourgeois, who I've, Ed's been on every he's he's in the audience every time. Ed, how you doing tonight? Okay. Could looking at the rhizosheath and root hair development of a crop be a way for a quick check on the system functioning? I would think so. Um, there's um there's some data that is you know just been in the last five or six years that talks about a new way for plants to that plants have been using forever but it's just been recently um, discovered by human beings and that really looking for those situations would also be indicative of some um, really healthy things going on in your plants so i yeah. think so but Here's where we've got to do the science. We've got to know that it is how we imagine it to be. So we've got to do some research on that before um, I'd be willing to say yes or no. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great question, Ed. Thank you. Uh, Fred Mikesell, again, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. Uh, here's another good question. Is the PLFA test helpful to test for fungal bacteria ratios? No. Um, everything that we've been doing, uh, we've been having somebody else do the PFO, the phospholipid fatty acids. Uh, and there are a lot of fungi that do not in any way produce any of the fatty acids or the lipopolysaccharides, or they produce a lot. They, you know, all, every place in between. Bacteria are the same way. It, you know, might be a slight indicator, but it takes so much time and effort to do that PFLA test. Um, and when you think about using your microscope, it's going to take you about two or three minutes to get the sample on the microscope. And then you look through your microscope and you go, ooh, there are only bacteria in here. That's all the more you need to know. Yeah. Um, now, when you get fungi in there and bacteria, now you can maybe count a little bit. You you don't have to know exactly how many bacteria or fungi or protozoa or nematodes. You just have to make certain that they're there in the right concentration. And you learn to get tuned into what does it look like when I've got the right combination or uh, uh, material, and I've got the right sets of microorganisms. And so it takes you 10 minutes to run the sample yourself and then you know. And it's right now, it doesn't take five weeks for it to come back from the laboratory. But yeah, now folks, again, I can't, I cannot stress enough that Dr. Elaine Ingham here is explaining to us, you go through her courses and they're gonna teach you how to do this at home and do that. You walk, get, get done with this podcast, Ron, walk out your back door, go grab a sample of soil. And in 20 and five minutes, you're going to be looking at stuff flying around. And believe me, they're, they are moving fast. 
So that's what's so cool about this. And you're right, we can get a result very quickly here. Yep, and it, it doesn't cost that much if you do it yourself. Now, if you send it off to a laboratory, you want something that's really close by, you want to have that person know what your telephone number is. So as soon as they get done with your samples, they'll call you up and tell you what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, Jim, how important is the living root to the effectiveness of the compost and microbes growing? Can you repeat that? I, I got distracted. Sorry. Yeah. How important is the living root to the effectiveness of the compost and the microbes growing? I assume he's referring to the root that's growing currently in the system. Yep. The root system puts out all kinds of exudates. So a mixture of proteins and, and carbohydrates and sugars. And every single exudate or you know, most of the exudates are different. They're telling different kinds of bacteria and fungi what to do. And so it's really the plant that's in control. As long as the biology is present for the message to get to the organism that needed to be messaged, tell that organism to do what the plant needs, then that plant is going to have all the nutrients it needs and all of the proper balances. So that root is critically important in establishing the habitat, the environment for that plant to be able to grow. So we want to make certain that we've got those balances of, those, of the bacteria and the fungi, or the protozoa and the nematodes, such that we're, we've got organisms that will be able to act on every message that comes out of that plant and get that plant to grow as well as it can. So we can finally start realizing the genetic potential of our plants. When there's absolutely no disease, when there's no problem with getting the nutrients, every second of every day that plant is getting the nutrients in the proper balances, we're going to have a plant that has the maximum amount of food, uh, nutrients in that food for human beings, for your animals, um, you know, it, we don't have to eat as much. Uh, yeah. And yeah, so really good things happen for human beings. So now, now you're starting to talk about human health and soil health. Yep. You can't have human health until you have soil health. Right. It's, it's just that simple. And, and nutrient density goes up as you apply these principles and, and do everything that Dr. Elaine's been talking about here. So, um, Okay, got a question from Walter. Chat about the payoff ROI of the course investment versus buying tillage equipment and power. Okay, great, great, great question. Um, the, I, we all know the answer, but go ahead. I mean, it's going to be huge. Yeah, so, you know, you don't need so much of the equipment that you have to spend so much money on. Um, yeah. You, you just don't need it anymore. You need the simple tractor. You need a sprayer. You need to buy a couple of, um, of uh, um, cone-shaped tanks. You need to, a couple of pumps. And that's what you're going to use. Well, maybe 
a turner for uh, the compost in the first couple of years that you need to uh, be making a lot of compost perhaps. Um, so yeah, I just don't think in terms of cost. Uh, I, I have friends who do that. Like if you go on our website, there's some work by Todd Harrington that has worked out in Illinois uh, in that part of the world. Um, and he's got the, the whole spreadsheet there for you. Uh, how much will you save? And in, I know that in his remarks, he says something like um, on a, a 5,000 acre farm, they, they reduce the costs to that grower by $2 million. I believe it. I believe it. So what I like to talk about, Elaine, is when, when you start down this journey, you, you sell all that equipment and it helps finance that first one, two, three years of kind of that learning process. But you see, here's my problem, and this is what I'm going to tell people, don't do what I did. I'm, I'm too stubborn. I, I wanted to do this myself, but if you are in full transition mode of getting out of, of mass destruction and starting to think about Build Soul Health, you've got to do what Dr. Elaine Ingham's talking about here. Take her courses and you're going to speed that, pro I, you're going to speed this process up immensely. I stumbled for four or five years trying to get the biology going. And, and this, and then I, you know, what I've heard you say two or three times is your goal would be to have me as a client. And then two years later, we, you say, don't need me anymore. Thanks a lot. See you later. Right. Yep. You, you might call us back in when there's a really weird weather, uh, you know, and something things just aren't working. But that would be about the only time you'd need to invite us back in. Yeah. So, and then you become the the person with with all your neighbors. You're the one who's looking through the microscope, and you're the one that's telling them. So you know, it's an ever growing circle. Um, yeah. So. It, you know, it's just awesome, doctor. It's absolutely what you've given us here for an hour and a half is, is just been incredible. I can't, I can't thank you enough. There's one last, one thing I want to bring. I keep forgetting it and then remembering it again and forget and then remember again. Yes. One of the things that you should be doing right away is sequestering carbon in your soil. Get that form of income and you don't even have to sell your old equipment you'll cover all the expenses that you've got just by selling carbon mm -hmm. because carbon doesn't doesn't go into the soil just up here in the top six inches carbon can be sequestered at the foot two feet five feet ten feet twenty uh root systems of um douglas fir for example go down 250 feet we should be able to put carbon back into the soil all the way down to 250 feet because we got plants that go down that far. Yeah. So how much money can you be making over the next five years just by carbon credits? Right. So um, there's another source of income for you. Sure, sure. Now, one other thing I want to talk about, I don't want to, I know we've been on an hour and a half, but I got, I want to go one more place. Uh, research. What, what, uh, what do I want to call them? Um, what augmentations or what additions 
are you research? I know I don't know if you can talk about all of them, but I mean, what can you give us some generalities? Are you are you working with algae? Are you work? I mean, what are you or seaweed? What what are you working with? Um, any food for the microorganisms? We want to test it to make sure that it's really going to feed the organisms that you want. So algae, uh, they're really good food for uh, the pre predators in the system. So the, the uh, protozoa and the nematodes, the uh, microarthropods, the earthworms, all of those guys. Um, I wanna make certain that that's not messing up your system because mother nature hasn't had, you know, mother nature doesn't grow algae off the East coast and then bring that food resource and dump it down into the middle of Illinois or Corvallis, Oregon, or, you know, wherever in, in Mexico. Um, right. Is it going to really do beneficial things? Or after a year or two, do you start seeing that something's kind of wrong here and it's not working right? And then we got to go in and we got to figure all of that out. I kind of feel like, we really can't take things from biomes that have nothing to do. They've never seen this before. So is it going to be a good thing or a bad thing? Well, so research is required on all of those different kinds of food resources. You know, humic acids, fulvic acids, you know, something that's from New Mexico. Is that really going to be the right kind of humic acid? for somebody living in Connecticut. Yeah. You know, so we got a lot of that to really look at and look at the long-term effect and not just, you know, keep making the same mistakes our grandparents and great-grandparents of, you know, not uh, trusting the green revolution without having a full understanding of what was really going on there. Because, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I think that's exactly what we have to say about the Green Revolution. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good analogy to use. That's exactly right. So let's go. You just made me think about something here. So when when we plant legumes like a, a, a vetch, a clover, they need to be inoculated. There's people that like to inoculate rhizobia on soybeans. Okay. Same thing. I don't know where that rhizobia is coming from. So do we need do with with your extracting idea, your tea bag, are we now satisfying that deficit of that bacteria? Yeah, because once you've inoculated uh, any part of your land and those bacteria have grown up, you've got them on the surfaces of all your plant material. So we're, we're going to make certain that they grow in the compost and then we'll extract them. You shouldn't have to constantly go back and buy more of something that is, is it going to re, be really good for you? Yeah. yeah. So, so let's look at that on the flip side. If you were to go out and buy the bugs in a jug, as I like to call it, you could be introducing something that's harmful to your system, right? Yep. And praise on the good, the things that were good in your system and now deplete them down to a point to where you're back out of balance again. Yep. And we've had a few cases of that. 
where you know things were definitely they worked just fine the first year and then the second year it was like what's going on um yeah. and people come to me and say what's happening well we're gonna have to do a lot of research to figure that one out and so i really like to stick with the things we know work yeah. and it's the indigenous organisms that are already adapted to your environment they are already capable of dealing with the conditions yeah i, I so oh totally uh, back to my epigenetics uh framework i totally agree with that totally yep. um so okay we have another question from jim melton expand about permaculture the future of monoculture crops I, I think we should not allow monoculture. Now, we got to grow large quantities of a number of different kinds of, of, of crops, but we don't ever want soil bare, ever, because that's just asking for catastrophe. Right. We want to put in understory plants that perhaps only grow maybe, you know, three inches, five inches, depending on what crop you've got in the field. But get all of that surface of your um, of your agricultural fields covered with this really good biology. And that means that whenever the whatever you're going to harvest, when when you harvest that, all of that good input of nutrients of foods into the soil for the bacteria, fungi, protozoa, and nematodes, that's lost. And so those guys go to sleep. Well, it's hard to wake them up again in yeah. the springtime. So why can't we have perennial understory plants, ground cover, that you can um, drive your tanks over it, you can drive whatever you want over it, and it just comes back. When we're thinking about compaction, this is really important. Because it's the water drops coming from the sky when, yep. think of the acceleration due to gravity. Well, and, 30 mile an hour, I think. Yeah, and you're compacting your soil. So where does that horrible compaction come from? Well, right there, that's probably one of the major sources. We've got to get the soil surface covered with plant material because then when that drop coming from the sky hits that leaf, it's slowed down but it's not going to hit the surface of the soil at 30 miles per hour. You don't compact your soil. That leaf kind of is going, whoa, what hit me? But it yeah. comes back. It's not going to be killed by a raindrop. So we need to have that kind of protection. And then, say like in the springtime, the um, cover plants are going to wake up immediately. The snow melts immediately those temperatures come back up and now you've got exudates already being produced so as those bacteria and fungi wake up they can go right into making certain my crop germinates and starts to grow my suspicion is we're gonna um, see people planting their seeds earlier and earlier in the growing season because the exudates are already down there and those plants can already take care of that nutrient cycling that's going on. Yeah, see, it, again, you make it sound so simple. I mean, I, I, I thank you so much for this has been quite an education. Um, now, I want to ask another, we're about ready to wrap this up. I got, I, I got another 
question for you. Well, it's my absolute favorite topic to talk about, so don't worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm going to be a little, I'm going to shift just a little differently here. Let's go now to some, to nitrogen. How much nitrogen is there above an acre of ground? I've heard 30,000 tons. Is that, is that about right? Well, do you mean by above the ground? You're talking about the atmosphere? Yeah, how much would be available over every acre of ground? Oh, it's got to be someplace uh, up uh, at that level. I've never sat down okay. and thought about it before. Well, what I'm getting at is there's so much of this free nitrogen above us. I mean, we're breathing 78% of it in every time we take a breath. Um, but it, you... we, we can't use it. It breathes in, it breathes out. Uh, yeah. There's, yeah, you're, you're going to have to do the necessary things to capture that. Right. So now let's go, I want to go two different directions here. Do you have to have only a legume to pull that nitrogen out of the atmosphere and fix it into a, a stable form that then the plant can use as, it, as it's released? There or are hundreds of other types of plants that fix nitrogen. Okay. It's not just legumes. That's what I was getting at. So then can we go with a package of, of plants that, that don't require or that are not a legume that can do the same, do the same thing? Yep. So why don't we get trefoils in there? Why don't we get other free living nitrogen fixers growing in uh, as ground cover and doing all that fixing of the nitrogen? So nitrogen is no longer a limiting element. Yeah, that's where I'm headed with this. This yep. is exactly where I'm headed. So if, okay, so now let's go a little deeper here. Let's go back to the, the legume package. And I've done, I've done these tests. We take, we take a two foot by two foot sample and we clip everything in that area and we send it to the lab and blah, blah, blah. And it comes back and there's 200 pounds of nitrogen in that above ground material. Okay, all right. Now, realistically, how long is it gonna take for that plant to be able to get to a any of that nitrogen i mean it's got to go through the the microbes they've got to break it down all this has got to happen so when is that first day of something available from termination well i i think there's a little bit of um i'm because the way i understand nitrogen fixation when you're dealing with rhizobium is the rhizobium forms a nodule and it is in that nodule that nitrogen from the atmosphere is converted that into gas is converted into nh4 right and now that nh4 gets attached to a long uh, a sugar uh, molecule and now you've got a protein and so those bacteria when they've uh, satisfied their own requirement for proteins and sugars, they will actually start to give to the plant those nutrients, the, uh, the sugars and the uh, carbohydrates, the proteins are given to the plant. So there's no going outside. This is okay. all done within the plant. It, the plant now takes that nitrogen wherever it needs to go. So when we're dealing with free living nitrogen fixers, they will too make nodules, nice tight little aggregates. In the middle of the aggregate is where that N2 gas is going. And um, the energy is 
uh, um, you know, present in that those bacteria. And so they will fix that nitrogen. And so those bacteria will grow bigger and bigger colonies or they'll get broken apart and they'll start their business elsewhere. The connection with the plant is a lot less because there's nothing coming from the plant to get those free living nitrogen fixers to be the pizza delivery guys. Nope, sorry. These guys are out here happily doing their thing without regard to the plant. Um, so lots of different kinds of free living nitrogen fixers as well. So we're increasing, we're increasing nitrogen all throughout the soil as long as you've got the conditions to right. have the aggregation occur. Um, those free living nitrogen fixers, the nodules on your legumes, the outside part of that, um, that um, uh, the, the fig nitrogen fixing parts have to be aerobic. But the middle of that um, um, a nodule. nodule, thank you, um, has to be anaerobic. Oh. Because to pull a nitrogen molecule apart costs an incredible amount of energy. It's almost like a, you know, an atomic bomb going off is the amount of energy that's needed. So as soon as those nitrogen molecules are pulled apart, you've got to get the hydrogens on there so that you now stabilize both of those new molecules. So it's got to be anaerobic or you have a little kaboom that happens basically. Wow. See that? Oh my gosh. That, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know. I mean, I knew this was happening, but not like the way you just explained it. Um, and that's, that's why we got to have people like me that get all interested in how does this work in reality? Yeah. You know, because well, this, the soil scientists, if you ever go look at their nitrogen cycling model, it's all chemistry. Like there's no organism even on their charts. Yeah. And that's just ridiculous because the, or the, the way those enzymes got there to do these conversions had to have a bacterium or it had to have some, the, the plant to, to be there for these forms of nitrogen fixation to even occur. The only step in the nitrogen cycle that does not require organisms of some kind to do their job is the conversion by ozone um, uh, beaten down on a nitrous oxide. Nitrous oxide will be converted into an N2 um, gas by ozone oh. so no organism involved there but every other step in the in the nitrogen cycle is done by a microorganism wow that's interesting well doctor i mean we've been going for two hours i'm going to let you go i mean please i'm, I'm probably going to ask you to come back sometime because there's so much more we could talk about again uh give us your 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 web address, please, so people know how to find you. And maybe Rachel will type it into the chat box. Okay. Um, it's info at soilfoodweb.com. Now, if, if you promise to ask just really good scientific questions, um, uh, I'll let you use my personal email address, which is eri at soilfoodweb.com. 
com. All right. But I, I do tend to ignore things that are like, um, you want to come out for a drink on Saturday night? I'm not <laughs> going to answer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I understand. But but seriously, folks, I, I you need to check this out. Um, and, and and doctor, how long how long has this school been running? How, when did you start it? It's been about three and a half years. Three and a half years. Yep. Three and a half years. So, you know, I. And, and the, what I like about this is you go at your own pace. So uh, sign up tomorrow, maybe catch a couple classes. You got vacations or whatever with kids and your family, and you come back and, and do it again. I mean, it's your own your own pace. So, um, Doctor, I cannot thank you enough. I mean, I'm absolutely honored to have you on our podcast, a, a, a lady of your stature and what you've accomplished. Thank you so much. Well, I thank you very much for um, having me on. And I will love to come back. It's really fun chatting and talking with you. It, you're 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 so excited about this, and it it just it's 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 so pleasant to be around someone that is cares so much about what you're doing, and what you're doing is going to change this world. So, do, we doctor, have to. thank, thank we you have so to. much. If we don't change the world, none of us are going to be here. Our children are gone. Grandchildren. So we have to do this. We've got to get everybody understanding how simple it is, really. It, I mean, you, you, you bring it down to our level. We appreciate that. But it, thank you so much. You, you have a great evening, and, and thank you. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Ciao.